Well, in our last episode together, we looked at the first part of Sinclair Ferguson's uh, book, chapter three, entitled The Plan of Grace. We want to continue that chapter today. And once again, I'm joined by Pastor Mike and uh, Tiemann and Kevin Moore uh, to help me unpack the rest of this chapter. And not just that, but really to look at the content of what this chapter is about and the, the kind of theology that it really provokes us to think about when we think about how great the salvation is that God has planned for his people. That is the grace that Sinclair Ferguson is talking about. And last week, you know, we talked about this idea that we need to understand the plan of God so that our salvation is not just a strictly individualistic idea, okay, God saved me, or that our salvation never becomes sort of as disoriented as sometimes our life can become, but that we always stay grounded in something like the order of salvation, or as theologians called it, the order salutis. And, you know, today we're going to focus on two critical texts of Scripture that Sinclair Ferguson uses to really get us to appreciate just how great God's salvation is that he has accomplished. And the first of those is Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, Mike, I'm going to have you read that text, and just for our listeners to understand, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 14, not only is Mike going to have to do a bit of reading here, and we're going to have to do a bit of listening, but to my understanding, this is actually the largest Greek sentence in all of antiquity. In other words, there is no, there's no bigger Greek sentence than this right here by the Apostle Paul, and it just so happens to be a Greek sentence that is expounding the absolute depths and the glory of the salvation that our Trinitarian God has worked for us. And so, guys, welcome to the program, Christ and Kingdom. Mike, Kevin, welcome to the show again, guys. It's good to have you. Great to be here with you, Emilio and Mike. Great to be back. Well, let's read God's Word. We ready? Well, we're ready for you to read it. It's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit of a section of Scripture, but so good. So good. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. It says, blessed be, God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Excellent. Fantastic. Now, when we think about this passage right here, um, you know, how does this differ from a passage like Romans 8? Because in Romans chapter 8, Sinclair Ferguson really um, pointed out the idea there of what we talked about in terms of the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And really, Romans chapter 8 is designed, right, to remind us that sinners, depraved mankind, desperately is in need of this kind of grace. Whereas in Ephesians, Paul's focus is a bit different. So, Kevin, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I actually love what uh, Ferguson says on page 21, and he expounds that, and he says this. He's talking about the the book of Romans. He says, the whole letter opens from the starting place of man's deep-seated need under the wrath and condemnation of God. And we see that obviously in Romans chapter 3, right? There's no one righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then he goes on and he says, it is only when he has expounded that need the divine answer to it in grace and the resources which are ours in Christ that Paul, Paul traces all this back to the eternal purpose of God as he closes the first major section of the letter with his paying of praise in Romans chapter 8. So again, we don't, we don't get the eternal counsel of God that, again, that he foreknew, that he predestined us until we get to Romans chapter 8 there. But I love what he says here. He says, Ephesians, by contrast, begins with that plan of salvation. And rather than describing its multifaceted outworking, and again, we're talking about foreknowledge, predestination, the effectual call, justification, adoption, glorification, all that. He says, Paul states it's Christological center. All spiritual blessings are ours in Christ. And he goes on to say this, which I thought was great. He says, in Romans 8, the great doctrines are links in a chain. In Ephesians 1, they are spokes in a will which centers on Christ. And we see that in that passage there that Mike just read. You know, in Christ, we're blessed, we're chosen, we're predestined to be his sons. And he goes on to say, we're engraced, we're enlightened, we're included, we're sealed. And again, he goes on to say that this emphasis here is not entirely chronological, talking about Ephesians chapter one, but rather Paul is drawing out the fullness of the grace, which becomes ours when we becomes Christ. And I, and I love later on, on in that same paragraph, he says this, he has therefore began. He, he has therefore begun to expand our original map of God's purposes, and I thought that was a great sentence. There again, we see that in Romans eight. That um, again, now we're seeing that it was in eternity past that God foreknew, He predestined. But Paul takes us right there in Ephesians chapter one. Wow, I was reminded by what what Calvin said. He said our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. Right, all of it. And I love that that phrase that he puts there in, in page 21, the, the Christological center, right? Christ as the center. That's his purpose uh, here in Ephesians. Hmm. Yeah. 
And I would say, yeah, just, adding, oh, go ahead. My, yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Kevin. I was going to say, I was even adding to that because I know in last episode we talked about, obviously, maybe some of the things that are um, some of the conversations that we've had with people that are really uh, struggling to, to comprehend or understand the doctrines of grace. And I think Ephesians 1 is a great passage in understanding that, that God does all things for his glory. And I think three times in that in that passage there, it says to the praise of the glory of his grace. And it really is. It, it's, it magnifies the grace of God. God is God-centered. He's about his glory. And again, I think, you know, Ephesians 1 expands on that as well. Yeah, for sure. It brings in another aspect of the doctrine of salvation, which is the most foundational. I'll never forget reading redemption accomplished and applied by John Murray, um, where John Murray articulates the fact that union with Christ, the doctrine of union with Christ, is the most important doctrine in all of soteriology. And it is because, of course, as Mike, you read from Calvin, that uh, all of our salvation is comprehended in Christ. Uh, There is not a single aspect of our salvation that has ever been conceived or realized that was done so apart from the mediator, the eternal son, then the incarnate son, and then the exalted son. So as we think about our salvation in Christ, we're kind of uniting the concepts, not only of the Ordus Salutis, but also of the Historia Salutis. Not just the order of salvation, but also the history of salvation and how that salvation is redemptive historically fulfilled in Jesus Christ, even as it is conceived in eternity, then it is worked out throughout uh, redemptive history and expanded upon, enlarged, revealed, and manifested, all organically connected. Uh, How does Sinclair Ferguson uh, put it there? He talks about Christ uh, being the center. Paul states it, Paul states its Christological center, and that's exactly right, because all of the blessings of salvation are ours in Christ. And so this reminds us that for the Christian life, what we're talking about, right? We're talking about the Christian life, and it's beautiful because if you think about it, we are not at any point in time as pastors and as counselors, as we are preaching counseling, directing people, or discipleship, at no point in time are we doing any of that outside of Christ. At no point in time do we direct people simply to an abstraction. At every point in time, in fact, we are directing people to a person. And that is critical for our understanding. Paul, the apostle Paul says, Christ is our life. Colossians chapter 3, right? If, uh, in in um, in 1 Corinthians 1, oh, I don't know, I think it's verse 30 or so, right? Uh, there we're told that in Christ, right, um, we have redemption, we have sanctification. He has become for us righteousness and wisdom from God, right? Uh, we are in Christ because of God's doing. And so this doctrine of union with Christ becomes so important, and, you know, sometimes it can be overlooked because 
there aren't a lot of passages that say things like, you are in union with Christ. But there's a lot of passages that talk about being in Christ, that things are through Christ, um, that you are in him, for example. And all of that has to do with union with Christ, uh, what theologians would refer to as our mystical union with Christ. And it's amazing that even theology like election, predestination, and foreknowledge, according to this passage in Ephesians, all of that has been conceived as God thinking about us in relationship to his son. So, I don't know, I think that that is so important for people to understand, even for pastors, right? That we don't ever simply counsel people. That's, I think that's a big difference between the therapeutic model and true biblical counseling, that in therapeutics, all you're doing is talking to people on their felt needs. All you're doing in therapeutical type approaches is you're trying to deal with circumstances. All you're trying to do is appeal to people's emotions or their mental state of mind. But in biblical counseling, we are, we are bringing the indicative to bear. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is the indicative and if we don't bring what is who you are in Christ, we don't make it to the imperative. The imperative without the indicative is empty religion. That's all it is. It's just duty-bound religion. And so we have to bring everything to center upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to ask you guys in terms of how, as pastors, uh, uh, that you know, as much as we seek to uh, apply all of this theology and make it useful for people, how do we do that in a way that impacts people right where they live? Yeah, you know, I was uh, I was kind of laughing a little bit ago because last night I was teaching out of out of John chapter twelve, where the Greeks come and they request the disciples and they say that famous line, "Sir, we wish to see Jesus." Right. And I, you know, that's just so underlined and marked up in my Bible of that's my responsibility as a pastor. You know, the old plaques on, on the pulpits, you know, of how freeing is it that we do not have to provide the answers for the people that we're shepherding? We're, we're not the answer. Right. Our role, our responsibility as, as shepherds is just to simply put them before Christ, a living person, right? Not not an abstraction, not not some, you know, mystic guru, but a person, the person of Christ who's sitting upon the throne in the high courts of heaven and 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 allow him to do his work in their lives. Right? That that's that's so freeing to me because it's not my work. It's it's his job. My job is just to say, look, look to him. You're in him, right? You're all of your hope is in him. That's good. I would, I would echo that wholeheartedly, Mike. Um, you know, Emilio, even as you were talking to, and just talking about the, the person of Christ, I mean, the passage that came to my mind too, and just even as we're talking about counseling too, is, you know, I've, I've had people in my office that are, that have been very discontent where they're at in life, in situations and circumstances. And it just popped in my mind, Philippians chapter four, but, but what does Paul say there? 
He says, I have learned in whatever situation I'm be content. So I'm going to be brought low, how to abound in any and every circumstance. But in verse 13, he says, as I can do all things through him. It's, Did you say Philippians? 4? Yes, Philippians 4, verse 13. Okay. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And as Mike said perfectly too, it, it is so freeing that we give them the word of God and, and, and it, is, it is sharper than any two-edged sword and, and we connect them to Christ and, and let him do his work in them. Mm. Wow, mm-hmm. amen. Uh, Mike, you want to tee up this next point and tell, give us a little bit of the background story? <laughs> Absolutely, I do. So, you know, Emilio likes to ask us tough questions just to watch us squirm. And then we joke that, you know, he's the resident theologian here, so we're going to throw it back on him. But in a very, you know, artistic, like Emilio, yeah, I could answer that. But, you know, I want to give you the opportunity. I don't want to outshine you, you know. Um, so we want to talk about the the Trinitarian dimensions um, of the passage in Ephesians, right? And Emilio, how about you break down just, just that God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit, uh, Trinitarian dimensions, as you put it, uh, as it's broken down in that passage. Mike, I'm kind of offended. You didn't ask me, man. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Emilio. Uh, I, yeah, I, I ask you guys tough questions because I know, or else I'll lose you guys. You guys would just get totally disinterested and check out. Uh, no, yeah, I, I I think you guys will see where I'm, what I'm getting at with this, but, uh, I think it was important because we look at this passage in Ephesians one and obviously it has a, I mean, the passage itself has a Trinitarian outline, right? It begins with the work of the father, uh, verses three to six, then the work of the son verses seven, uh, all the way down to, let's say verse 12. And then it ends with the work of the Spirit, verses 13 and 14. And I don't want to expound necessarily on the, the exegetical you know, details of all of that. I think more than anything, I just wanted to bring up this idea that even as we think of the Christian life, right? Um, guys, Christianity is Trinitarian. And we are woefully... Uh, we are woefully deficient in our Trinitarian spirituality, and I think that I think that's a huge area of the, that the church needs to correct. Uh, that we 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 do so much uh, Christ-centered books and you know things like that, but which are great and phenomenal, so long as those things are understood from a robustly and even deeper Trinitarian foundation. Uh, because, you know, we have no other God other than the Trinity, <laughs> right? And though we may neglect to be Trinitarian or self-consciously Trinitarian, even the most practical areas like prayer, you know, where uh, for a lot of evangelical Christians and just everyone, if we're not careful, we sort of forget how to address God in a Trinitarian fashion, I think it's remarkable to me, right, that Jesus even had to teach his disciples how to pray in a Trinitarian way. And uh, I just I just think, like, as we think about the great salvation that God has provided, how everything centers upon Christ, that we do not forget this idea that all of that comes from the economy of the Trinity itself, and that that Trinitarian God has grounded our very redemption 
in the Trinitarian nature of his own being, and which is amazing. And uh, not to get too technical here, but as we think about each subsistent or each person of the Godhead as they share the essence, that each person thinking of their personal properties does that which, according to their personal subsistence, is perfectly in keeping with their being, the Father being, in a sense, uh, uh, sort of, um, the word I want to use there would be, uh, you know, ingenerate, meaning he is not generated, he is not begotten. And so there is something fountal about the Father so that he, and even here in our redemption, is sort of the, the deepest sort of eternal predestining, electing sort of foundation of it all, right? And then the one that does come from the Father in a generate way, begotten, he is the one who therefore is sent as our Redeemer, as our mediator, you see, because it, it just flows perfectly out of his role as the second member of the Godhead. And then, of course, the Spirit, who then mystically indwells the Trinitarian Godhead in this sort of uh, processional way, that he then is sent to us in a processional way to fill our very beings uh, with this salvation to the point where we are sealed. So I don't know, guys. I just I don't want to skip over the Trinitarian dimensions of our salvation. I want us, if we're thinking, if we're truly, truly going to talk about the Christian life and think Christianly, then we cannot, we cannot overlook that our God is, is triune. And so, um, yeah, I just thought that was important. Any, anything you guys want to add to that, feel free. Uh, yeah, you, 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 you know, you stole the words right out of my mouth, Emilio. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how Kevin was going to answer it. <laughs> Amen. Well, Kevin, let's put you to use. <laughs> uh, why don't you read the next passage? Because Sinclair goes from, you know, looking at the theology of Ephesians to Johannine theology. So he goes to John chapter 1. Why don't you read that text for us, verses 12 and 13. Definitely. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Yeah. Yeah, and I think obviously here, the, the, the whole point of this, right, for Sinclair to bring this up, it's just this idea of the new birth and regeneration and how important the doctrine of regeneration is. Herman Boving says that regeneration is the entry point of all the religious life of man. And that's exactly right. When we go from darkness to light, when we go from death to life, when God in his great mercy made us alive in Christ Jesus, right, he imparted to us the principle of life. He gave us birth, and that birth comes from God. And in this passage right here, it's funny because, you know, we were talking about the doctrines of grace pretty heavily in our last episode. And here now, we get a passage of Scripture in John that removes this whole idea of synergism. What is synergism? 
Well, synergism, just the idea that man and God work together and through a sort of mutual uh, interdependence, really, we produce what comes to be salvation. And this passage right here, for me, excludes even the possibility of that, because when you consider what the new birth is, you understand that the power that is at work in us is not something we can give to ourselves, uh, but is holy of God. When he says here that we are born, the kind of birth, you know, the new birth and the kind of birth that John is thinking about, he's saying here, is not of blood. So he's not talking about physical descent, not descendancy or ethnicity. He says, nor the will of the flesh. He's not talking about mere procreation, something we can do. And he says, nor of the will of man. And that last one really is what gets people out, is that uh, nor of the will of man excludes the idea of volition. So this radical new birth is not something um, that man is even capable of producing. I remember R.C. Sproul Uh, talking about the 10 most important things that he believes, (laughs) and that he would remind himself of this once a year, and he would go over it to keep it really fresh in his mind. (laughs) And in typical Sproul form, (laughs) one of the things that, you know, he absolutely had to believe was that concept of monergistic regeneration, uh, that regeneration precedes faith. And certainly you see that right here in, in a passage like this, right, that, it, it, that God is the one that grants the new birth. So I don't know if you guys wanted to add anything more, the importance of the doctrine of regeneration. I mean, this is, this is key. This is John chapter 3. Mm-hmm. Right. This is the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus. You must be born again. You're not gonna. You're not gonna get to heaven. You're not gonna see it. Right. Unless you are born from above. Right. Nicodemus doesn't doesn't get it. Right. He's thinking the physical. Jesus is talking the talking the spiritual there. Right. He has. Well, how is it? Is an adult supposed to, uh, you know, go up into his mother's womb again and be be born a second time? And he's like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Spirit's sovereign work of raising those who were dead, right? Dead spiritually um, to life in Christ, right? Through the gospel, right? Through through Jesus Christ. That's that's regeneration. And, and I was reading, if I could just quote Beaky here for just a minute, I was reading as he's, he's interacting with uh, Thomas Goodwin and Flavel, and he says this, man is passive in regeneration, He is born of the spirit, born of God, and not born of anything in man, not his blood, his flesh, or his will. That's John 1, 13. Regeneration must be the sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit. There is no cooperation or synergism when it comes to regeneration. Man is born of the spirit, and uh, man is not born of the spirit and of his own will. The new birth is monergistic, not synergistic. New birth is an effect or work of the spirit in us and not a begetting of a nature or being 
the same that the Spirit himself is of. The Spirit of God is the efficient cause of our principle, the sole author of regeneration. In regeneration, man does not contribute towards this work because it is the sovereign and supernatural work of God. In saying this, they were saying, and they referring to, to Flavel and Goodwin and those, they were saying that in regeneration, divine grace reigns. Divine grace reigns and human nature is passive. Grace works on nature to give it life. Nature cannot and does not cooperate with grace. Mm. Right? I mean, just, yeah, he, he drops it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Kevin, do you have something that you want to share that you think is of the most practical application of the doctrine of regeneration? Yeah, knowing that that God is the one who raises from the dead, it's it's through his effectual call. He is, as 2 Corinthians 4 talks about, is he has shown the light. I mean, he has spoken light into our life. I mean, he has raised us from the dead. He's given us uh, um, the knowledge of the glory of Christ. And, you know, as you guys were talking, I was thinking of 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 1 and verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God is the one that has caused us. He's the one. He is. It was monergistic, as you said. It's not synergistic at all. But on the practical level, um, and we even talked about this at, on our last episode, is the humility that, um, that it should bring into our lives. Um, it should cause yeah. us to be the most humble people there is. And, and again, you know, when we talk about the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism, all that as well, oftentimes it's, it's been given a bad name because people will, again, just try and bash other people with that instead of t- realizing that what is it designed for? It's designed and these things are to bring us in absolute uh, awe and wonder of who God is and of our salvation. And, um, and I think first and yeah. foremost, again, as we talk about the doctrines of grace, it should bring such a humility into our life and, and, and a humbleness um, mm-hmm. that we should exude to others. And when we truly, truly know these, this doctrine. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I think maybe just one more practical aspect of this. When we think about regeneration, what is regeneration saying? Right? Regeneration is saying that we have undergone a supernatural rebirth. And so as we're communicating to people the nature of the Christian life, and in our pastoral theology and in our pastoral ministry, one aspect of that is that we are calling people to be who they supposedly are in Christ, and that is that they're a new creation. And so it's very, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very serious matter when someone who's claiming to be a new creation in Christ is not acting out or behaving or has a pattern of life that displays that, in fact, they have had a supernatural rebirth from God, an extraordinary transformation, that they are born of him. First John is replete with this kind of language of the new birth, and he compares the new birth to the concepts of light and darkness, right? That if you've been born of God, you've gone from darkness to light. 
and that if you are born of him, then you no longer sin or practice sin. And so there, um, I, I don't know, I just think for counseling purposes, as we work through sinful activity in people's lives, as we think about concepts like, uh, you know, concepts like uh, assurance, perseverance, holiness, and growth, the new birth is saying that through the Spirit, you have been supernaturally regenerated in order to live this life. And so at some fundamental point, if we find ourselves working harder on someone's sanctification than they are, that's a major flag, red flag, as to whether or not we're dealing with a regenerate person. Because if you deny the power thereof, at some point when, when, when various avenues have been exhausted, we have to now question if the new birth has really happened. And so I don't know, I just think there's a lot of accountability that comes with this doctrine. Does that, yeah. does that resonate with, with you guys as well? Absolutely. I think that's a, I think it's a phenomenal point because the reality is, is that when you've been given a new heart, you have new affections, you have new desires, you're a new creation. And for somebody, as you said, is if we're trying to work hard in that and not, and again, it, it's just showing that and you're questioning, do they really have the spirit of God inside of them? Or is this a, is an issue? And I've thought often as I've talked with people and counseled people, is this a is this a parable of the sower? You know, it might have shot up quick, or um, you know, when the trials and the tribulations hit, they're going to fall away. And when those times happen, you know, obviously got to look at First John two nineteen, which says they went out from us because they were never of us. And um, no doubt, we've had friends, we know people that have claimed at one time to be a Christian but uh, now have apostatized and, um, you know, and, and clearly and loudly blaspheme the name of Christ. And, um, you know, it, it is, Amila, like I said, I can't reiterate enough what you said is, is if you're continuing to have to work hard, hard, hard to try and get this individual to live their life as Christ has commanded, then the reality of the situation is, is many times they're not believers because again, that is something that should be coming from the inside. Again, when you're a new creation, you should desire to want to live as Christ has commanded. And I think this is also a completely foreign concept and practice within American church. The, the idea of holding somebody accountable to actually walking with Christ and living out their Christian life and, and reality of regeneration. Um, hey dude, you're just being judgmental, bro. Right? Like you're, you're on this power trip. You're an abusive, heavy shepherding, right? Like we, we get all these, these terms and, and, and church discipline gets thrown out the window and they just go to the church down the street. Um, and that has become the practice. And I think sadly the norm in American Christianity that in a, in a pastoral, you know, in a pastoral context, uh, we often have to fight to to get to that point of accountability with somebody uh, to say, "Hey, you should 
really be just loving your wife. Like this is basic, right? But you're not like, stop, stop going out to the bars and, 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 and come to church. Like we're often operating in such a elementary way. I I think might be a way to put it with, with people in pastoral ministry, um, and such a needed conversation in the, in the modern church of, of bringing back, um, accountability, Oh, for sure. I think there's a balance and a tension that is involved in that as well. Because what we're what we're talking about is very serious. Because we're dealing with we're dealing with, in a sense, making a judgment call if someone is in Christ or not. You know, uh, salvation is a mystery, and it's it's we are fallible men. Pastors are not inerrant. We're not infallible. We are not we're not prophets no matter what certain people say. <laughs> uh, we, we, we can't see inside of a soul of an individual. Uh, Jesus commanded us not, right? Like, I'm thinking of a place like Matthew 13. Uh, verse 30, Jesus says, you know, you need to let the wheat and the tares grow up together. You know, don't pull them apart before the time. And so it's not that we're making pontificating on, hey, you're saved, you're not saved, you're saved, you're not saved. That's not the point here. The point is that there's comes a certain point in time in a person's life that if they're if they're not having fruits in keeping with the kingdom, it makes you question whether or not they actually have partaken of the kingdom through regeneration. So I think it's a fair point of discussion. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, we come back to consider what, what Sinclair does in the rest of this book here, the rest, the rest of the chapter, rather, you know, he talks about all of the theology that goes into the Christian life. And at a very practical level, at the bottom of page 22 and then 23, as he goes on to describe, you know, all the different aspects of this salvation, all that's involved, we talked about this in our last episode, just in terms of the order salutis, the concept of uh, repentance and, and, and faith now comes into view when we think about things like justification, adoption, and all of that, you know, but it's remarkable to think about all of these doctrines, all of this theology going together, but what I want to talk about one more time is just kind of reiterate this idea, as Sinclair kind of points out here, that all of this is fundamentally in Christ. And he says on page 23, in Christ, it is in Christ that we receive all the blessings of the Christian life. We are chosen in him. In him, we are predestined to be like him. In Christ, we are called. In him, we are born again to newness of life. In him, we have faith. We receive the Holy Spirit. In him, we are brought into the privileges of brotherhood and the family of God. In Christ is our sanctification. Uh, When we see him, we will be made like him, for when he appears in glory, we shall also appear with him. Uh, From beginning to end, all blessings are ours in Christ. And so just kind of doubling down on this idea that everything in the Christian life is Christ-centered, Christocentric, and, you know, all the way down to our resurrection and our standing before him, even that is in Christ. So I don't know if you guys had some concluding thoughts just of the doc before we move on cuz I mean we're about to move on from the doctrine of union with Christ, but just any other additional thoughts you guys had on that? I mean, I just say amen. It is it is such a precious 
reality that we should think much of and think deeply of yeah. uh, in our daily Christian life, that we are in Christ. Christ is the center. He's it. Yeah, I think as, as you read earlier, Emilio, I think 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, just, just sums it up perfectly. And mm-hmm. I'm going to read that again. It says, because yeah. of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I love verse 31. And knowing that, what should we do? So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Yeah, and if you think about that, it's a perfect setup for his last points, right? Because the next thing he discusses is not just union with Christ, but really what we could probably think about even more so, it's just like our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ. Um, uh, Man, it just becomes so important, you know? Like these are what we talked about before, the indicatives of Christianity. And let's talk about that. I really want all of us to, 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 to talk through this because that's really what we're doing in the Christian life when we're, when we're trying to get people, when we're discipling people, when we're counseling people, when we're calling people to account. All we're doing is calling them to be who they actually are in Christ. And so, Let's talk about that. Let's talk about, again, the, just the relationship of the imperatives that we find, like in a book, like in a, I always go back to Ephesians. I don't know about you guys, but I go to Ephesians. You can also do that in Colossians 3. But, you know, as we go from who you are in Christ, the new man, putting on the new man, and then from there moving on to the practical matters of life, so to speak. But again, just doubling down on who we are uh, in Christ. You know, I think... It, I like we, like we said, the imperative and indicative, um, you know, I mean, you see that even throughout scripture, it's, uh, you know, you think of the first 11, uh, chapters of Romans and then what do you have in Romans chapter 12? Therefore, right. Mm-hmm. Obviously in Ephesians that we've talked about this evening, it's Ephesians chapter one that God chose us. Ephesians two, you're dead in sin and that you have been saved by grace through faith. And then again, you get to chapter four says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so I think you see that, you know, in Romans, you see that in Ephesians, based on what Christ has done, who we are in Christ, now live like this. Hmm. And let me follow that up really quick, Kevin, with a, just a, a quick follow-up for you. And this idea of, it's not just about telling people who they are in Christ, but it's also reminding people, think about it, Romans 8, for example, it's also about reminding people who they're not in Christ. Because I think that's our biggest challenge, right? Is trying to encourage people to awaken, not just to who they are in Christ, but a lot of times the way we get there is through a negative theology, as it were, and reminding people, you're not this, you're not that, you're not, like I just got done, I forgot, I was talking with someone, maybe it was my wife, we are talking about the fallacy of people talking about, for example, the gay Christian and people saying, well, I'm a Christian, I'm gay, you know, but I just, I, I'm, I choose to be celibate. That is completely incoherent from a biblical standpoint, because to be a Christian is incompatible with saying, I am gay at the same time. In fact, you are not, if you're a Christian, you were formerly that, but you're not that anymore. So I don't know, just in terms of 
just emphasizing that also from the perspective of what you are not anymore. I think that's brilliant. Both, both the positives and the negatives, you know, in that we are positively changed and we're no longer who we once were. That That's so freeing. And I, I want to remind us just in this conversation, we're, we're going to go way, way, way back to page one of his book, um, right? All, all 20 pages back-ish. Um, he said this, the conviction that Christian doctrine matters for Christian living is one of the most important growth points of the Christian life. Doctrine matters not so that we could sit around and do theological podcasts, right? However important those those discussions might be, but the purpose of those is to produce a changed life for, for Christian living. Uh, William Perkins said, theology is the science of living blessedly forever, right? It is the science of living blessedly forever, like happy right? That, that doctrine that comes into our minds, right doctrine, right? The Bible that comes into our minds produces that fruit of a changed life and what we once, and, and everything you just said, what we once were, I'm no longer that, right? Yeah. And, and, and I'm changed and I'm being changed. I'm, I'm not, I'm not perfect, Right, all all of us sin today, right? Like, but we're being changed and we're being brought into conformity to the likeness of Christ. That's what we talked about. What was that? The last episode, right? That's the ultimate goal um, of this this whole this whole thing, and um, so that that right theology produces the right living. You know, talking about negative theology, as you guys were talking, I was thinking of First Corinthians chapter six. And what does it say? It says in verse nine, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here it is in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Amen. Yeah, and there's also in Romans 8, no condemnation. And what what is what is one of the most pervasive issues in pastoral ministry, but dealing with people who are condemned, who are feeling condemned, living like they're condemned, right? Walking around condemned and not tapping into that blessed life that you're talking about, Mike. Not walking around like Paul says, in triumph, in Christ, we are more than conquerors, right? Just not walking in the, in the absolute perfect liberty because Paul says in, in Galatians that it was for liberty that Christ set us free. And yet so many Christians are still bound and a lot of it's emotional, psychological, a lot of it is obviously spiritual, spiritual to the degree that you sin, you fail, you 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 have grieved God and the Spirit, but if you understand who you are in Christ, there still is the way out of that is to remember who you are in Christ and not just pile on a bunch of imperatives, not just pile on a bunch of duty, 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 and law, but before you get to delighting in the law, you first have to delight in who you are in Christ and that will allow you to delight 
in the law of God. So I don't know, super, super helpful. I think those points right there, but um, it, you know, as he thinks, as, as uh, Ferguson moves on to practical uh, sort of repercussions, as he calls it, or the implications of this, he focuses on three different um, sort of characteristics or virtues um, that should result uh, from looking at, you know, of course, who we are in Christ, but uh, all of these glorious theological truths and how we should uh, how we should uh, appreciate all of this doctrine that God has done. He focuses on humility and assurance, and he focuses last of all on worship. And I don't know. I think that is super important for us to to talk about. Uh, Kevin, you alluded to this already, but just how all of this theology should lead to a deeper humility. What did Sinclair Ferguson highlight with regard to that? You know, he said this, he said, humility is not simply feeling small and useless like an inferiority complex. It is sensing how great and glorious God is and seeing myself in that light. He said, humility in scripture is the fruit of grace, not of fear. It is God's love, which makes a man truly humble. And really, that's what the doctrines of grace are designed to do, to really humble us, to know that God chose us. He's the one that, that called us. He's the one that regenerated us. He's the one that's going to glorify us. Again, that monergistic salvation. And, um, you know, I like, what he, I like how he talked about worship as well, though. He said, understand the plan of salvation, the order salutis, also leads us to worship. And, you know, we see, you know, Romans eleven thirty six, right? I mean, you even see in Ephesians, it's for the glory of his grace. And we're not going to get, we're not going to get to heaven and we're not going to pat ourselves on the back and think, man, I was so great. I was so wonderful. Or I'm the one that did it. I put my faith in Christ. No, that's not the case at all. And so truly understanding the doctrines of grace that we were dead in our trespasses and sins Man, that causes us to worship God and be such a thankful people for what he has done for us in Christ. Yeah, what do you think, Mike? Amen. I mean, I don't have anything else to add to that. He talks about assurance, which I thought was really, really crucial, kind of like worship being the ultimate takeaway right? That we worship God in light of all this great salvation that he's done, but also practically the, the concept of assurance. I mean, that, that too is like one of the biggest things plaguing the Christian church is believers who lack assurance. You know, I've met very mature believers who are, um, you know, theologically mature. You would look at their lives, you would look at their families, you would look at their homes, and you would think, you know, these are folks that know doctrine, know theology, they're consistent, at church, but at the same time, you know, they lack assurance and they're plagued by it, you know? And so anytime that we can strengthen our assurance, I think is really important. And sadly for a lot of Christians, that assurance, a lot of times they seek that assurance in emotionalism. I know growing up, for example, for me in Calvary Chapel, it's funny, we're celebrating the Jesus revolution thing and you know, people are <laughs> watching this movie on Chuck Smith and all that. Well, I went to Chuck Smith's church, and I was baptized by Chuck Smith. And I remember being at his church in the 90s, where at any time that I lacked assurance, I remember in those early months and years even, 
at least for the first couple of years, that I thought my assurance would come from a very intimate moment in music or or, or worship singing or even walk going forward in an altar call just to make sure <laughs> that I was closer to God up there, <laughs> okay? When really what I needed more than anything was to understand the theology that the three of us have been unpacking here today. Hey Amen. I, I love what he says here is lack of assurance is often caused like a sense of inferior, inferiority, inferiority by being too taken up with ourselves. Right? In other words, get your eyes off of yourself, right? Get them onto God, right? Get them onto Christ. He's he's the center, right? All of Ephesians, right? He's the center, right? It wasn't by you. It wasn't by your will. It wasn't your family pedigree. It wasn't anything but God, right? It's, it's not about you. And he goes on, he says, but our assurance does not lie in what we are, be we great or small. It lies in what God has done in his plan of salvation to secure us to himself. What a precious line. God uh, believe God's word and power more than you believe your own feelings and experiences as he's quoting Samuel Rutherford. And then he goes on to quote Samuel Rutherford. And he says, your, your rock is Christ and it is not the rock which ebb and flows, but your sea, right? We're, we're the, we're the, we're the ones that are all tossed to and fro and, and going all over the place and, and seeking emotional experiences, like you said, in worship or, or confidence in a, in a raised hand at an altar call. Our confidence is found solely in what God has accomplished in our salvation through and through. And when we come back there, we, we breathe that sigh of relief and, and we, we cast off that burden of condemnation, that burden that I have to earn my place, that I have to do something, right? We cast off all the failures, right? All of us have failures. We, we cast all those off and say, praise God, it's, it has nothing to do with my failures, but everything to do with him and, and his successes, if I could put it that way. And that's so true because the reality of the situation is, is as in Claire Ferguson said, it's, it's we're looking at ourselves when we're lacking assurance and instead of looking to Christ. And I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've talked through through the years that have, have lacked assurance. And the reality of the situation is I, I take them to the order of salutis. I take them and say, look, if God shows you if, if God predestined you, if God has effectually called you, don't you think he's going to finish what he started? And, and, and to root him in that, because when we truly do understand that, as Sinclair Ferguson said, it will bring assurance into our life. He is going to complete, as Philippians 1, 6 says, he will complete what he started. And knowing that and looking to Christ and I just, again, I thought it was a phenomenal chapter. I love just the practical yeah. implications that he ends with. What was the order of salutis? What are the doctrines of grace? What is that designed to do? It's designed to humble us. It's designed to bring us assurance. And it's designed for us to worship God with all our heart. And I, I want to point out, you know, less, less people get confused. He ends with worship. Right, because I think the accusation be like, oh, you guys are just about orthodox, dead orthodoxy, and and heady religion, and you know, Emilio just you know bashed and experience and worship. That that's not at all what 
is being said, when we have the right context of theology and understand it rightly and are applying it correctly in our thinking, that has radical effects on our passion in, in worship, right? And that's where it should end. So in no way are we downplaying worship. We're downplaying emotionalism, um, but we're upplaying correct doxology. Yeah, that's great, guys. You know, um, as we study theology, you know, I know for me, like as pastors, we study theology, and when we look at someone that's dealing with discipleship issues, I think there's a part of us that says, you need to go get, you know, a, a systematic, th- you need to read Burkhoff, or you need to read Bavink, or you need to read Voss, or something, because we want to give them the richest, thickest theology, right? Because we know this is what your mind needs, but, you know, too often, you know, Christians can't handle that much theology, <laughs> let's be honest, Right. At a practical level, they they need something much more manageable. And this book right here, I've got to be honest, this book right here has been um, one of, if not the go-to discipleship books for me to give to someone that I want them to have a sound biblical foundation of faith. Because I, I got news for you, the next chapter, okay, uh, is Sinclair Ferguson walking us through the doctrine of the call of God. We're going to look at the concepts of general and, and and the effectual call of God. So it's remarkable because we talk about how much theology people need, and a book like this, even though it's very practical, still walks people through that theology without giving them all the high academic stuff that probably they can't handle many times. But uh, so anyway, but man, another great episode, guys. Um, so thankful for you guys and your feedback and everything, and uh, can't wait for the next one. Uh, we might break away and do something on a different topic, but uh, if if we don't, we'll just continue through this book. It's been very rich, very encouraging. So thanks, guys, again for contributing. Everybody out there, again, make sure, share, subscribe, and tune in next time. God bless you. Another episode of Christ and Kingdom. God bless. <laughs>